If you have your Bible, turn to those, to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 13. Today we're reading out of Acts, chapter 13. If you have your Bible, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Just so that you know what's going on, I will return to the Gospel of John next week. Okay, We will return to John chapter 14. So I know I've taken a big, long break from that book, uh, but we will return next week to John chapter 14. Today, though, we're doing kind of the final week of our vision. Last week we talked about who we are as a church, our DNA, how God has wired us, kind of why we were put on planet Earth, so to speak. And then today we really talk about where we are going. What does the future hold for our church here at Calvary? And the image of the church that I want us to be is found in the book of Acts, chapter 13. It is the church in Antioch. Notice it with me. I'm going to back up to chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John who is also called Mark. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering, I want you to notice that word while in verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Amen. Heavenly Father, what a reminder that we have that you've given to us, that you instructed your disciples to partake in the upper room that traces all the way back to the Exodus. And Lord, I just thank you for the reminder that it is, that our sin is paid in full. And Lord, you take sin seriously, the sin which so easily entangles us. And Lord, I pray that we would be mindful to go before the throne of grace to confess our sins and to repent of them and to walk according to your word and according to the spirit. And Lord, I just thank you for today. Thank you for this monthly reminder that we have of the sacrifice that you made for us on the cross. May it never be taken for granted. And Lord, I just thank you that you sent your son to die in my stead. And Lord, I pray for my friends that are in this room today that they would believe in you, believe in the gospel that cost you the the life of your son, that you get to us free of charge, that if we would believe in you, that we shall be saved. And Lord, this morning, I have a, a really, my heart is in a bit of turmoil. There's a lot I would like to share with us. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to the hearts and minds of our people, my people, my family, my church. Lord, I pray that we would follow you to the direction you would call us to go without fear and without drawback, but boldly following you in the vision and mission that you have given to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A single pebble ripples a pond. A single flame lights a forest. A single man redeems the lost. And a single church can change the world. A single church can change the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that a group of 130, 150 people, however many are here today, do you think a group of people that sit on 607 Drake Avenue can we really change the world? If you do not believe that, the evidence that 
a church can change the world is that you are here today. That there is one church that we see in the book of Acts that we read earlier that changed the world by making two simple choices. And they are the choices that we must make if we want to follow the Lord in the direction that he has for us to go. What are the two things that the church in Antioch chose in Acts chapter 13? And that is what we will talk about today. So if you have your Bible, turn in those to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. Today we kind of pick up where we left off last time. As I mentioned, last week we assembled a kind of an all-star crew, a dream team of Calvary uh, core members and leaders, elders, deacons and lay members, young and old alike, all, all the above. And over the last year or so, we kind of deciphered kind of who we were. That's what we talked about last week. What is our DNA? How, how God has wired us? Why did God put us on this planet? That's what we talked about last week. And then this week, we talked about where are we going? What is the mission that God has for us? Last week, we talked about who we were. We looked at our values. Why do we do what we do is what those answer. Our mission measures answer why do we, how do we know that we are successful? And then our mission is what we are here to do. What is our mission? Somebody quizzed me today at lunch. I was at Urban Cookhouse, and he said, what's your mission? Guiding all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships, a relationship with God, a relationship with believers, and a relationship with non-believers. But I left off a question from last week. Okay, some of you are probably saying, okay, that's nice to have values and mission measures and a nice mission statement, but what's the question we're missing? How? How do we actually get there? Well, that's what I want to answer first today is kind of the question on our strategy. How are we going to make biblical disciples or biblical followers of Christ? And then for the most part of our message today, we're going to talk about where are we going. So if you have, you notice that nice uh, shiny sheet in the hallway. uh, Kind of on the back, you'll see our strategy, our disciple-making strategy that we're going to use to accomplish our mission. Now, we put it on a baseball diamond why is because we live in America. We understand for the most part how baseball works. It shows the progression of a disciple through the paths of the disciple-making process. And I know there are limitations for that. I get that. And we can talk about that later on. But it's just to help us make sense of it. But really what we're trying to do is how do we... A biblical understanding of the disciple-making process. There are many different ways to skin a cat, so to speak. There are many different ways to so-called label it. We've had around here reaching, encouraging, equipping, if you've seen that in the past. I saw one church, come as you are, be transformed, make a difference. There's win, build, send. There's win, grow, equip, and send. There's a lot of different ways to describe the disciple-making process. The way we describe our disciple-making process is gather, grow, gear up, and go. Gather and worship, grow in a group, gear up for training and service, and go out. And that's what I'm going to talk about for the next five minutes, and then we're going to talk about vision. The first base... The first step really, well, not the first step, but moving on. The first base, I'll say it that way, is gathering in worship, which is our Sunday morning service. That this, We believe that this is a necessary part of the disciple-making process here at Calvary Bible Church. But I've got to be a little bit transparent on this base. Um, there are two lies that Christians believe when it comes to the Sunday morning service. And the reason I know that there are two lies that every Christian struggles to believe is because I have believed one or the other of these lies at one time. Lie number one is that some Christians believe that the Sunday morning service is useless, is, serves no purpose in the disciple-making process of a believer. And those who 
see the Sunday morning service as kind of useless. They think that just hearing a sermon and going home isn't really enough for most Christians. And guess what? They're right. That a lot of Christians, let's just be transparent for just a second, that a lot of Christians just kind of come to church because it's easy and you kind of check a box. And so a lot of Christians who are more idealistic-centered, and I've been like that in the past, and I still am to a degree, but a lot of Christians that are more idealistic kind of believe that the gathering and worship, that this time really serves no purpose. But is the Sunday morning service useless? What, it, what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? If you haven't read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in a while, it really gives kind of the template for our church service. 1 Corinthians 12 is the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter of love. And then chapter 14, we see this, verse 26. And I'm going to bounce around a bunch of different passages today, and I apologize for that. It says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, and has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now we see here in First Corinthians chapter 14, we see really a church service. It says, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, and has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. We see the process of a service, but we also see the purpose of a Sunday morning service and gathering worship. And if we believe that a tongue, an interpretation, and a revelation is no longer normative, that's a hot-button topic. We could talk about that in the hallway, and some of y'all could throw darts at me, okay? But if we believe that tongues, and interpretation, and a revelation, we believe those are no longer normative, then what is left in the church service described in 1 Corinthians 14? It is a psalm and teaching. Guess what we do every Sunday morning? A psalm or songs, and then teaching from the Word of God. But what's the purpose of this? If you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, what's the purpose of a Sunday morning service? It says, let all things be done for the edification. That word edification means to be building up. So the purpose of this, this serves a necessary role in the disciple-making process. It is for the edification and the building up of Christians. Lie number one that most, some Christians believe is that they believe that the Sunday morning service is useless. But then lie number two is some Christians believe that the Sunday morning service is enough. That they believe this is enough. That this is enough to really grow close to God. It's enough to kind of check a box and kind of feel good about life. To get people's Jesus fix. Okay, I had a long time ago, I had somebody tell me the reason she went to church is because she wanted to get her worship on. I was like, okay, that's interesting. Okay. Um, <laughs> what does that even mean? Okay. But is Sunday morning church enough? I believe a necessary part of really growing in our faith, this is part of it. But friends, listen to me. There is a role that we have in authentic community. That is why we're rolling out small groups to the church at large. That we grow best not in pews or in rows, but in relationships and homes and in circles. So first base is the gathering and worship, and the second one is growing in a group. As I said, we believe people grow best in circles and homes, not rows and pews. A growing in a small group is a necessary piece. If you think about kind of our culture speaking, that gathering and worship is kind of the front door to a church. A lot of people kind of begin here and then connect to the next step in the disciple-making process. So kind of the second base that we use in the disciple-making is growing in a group. 
We believe that a necessary part is having authentic community with other believers. I read many verses on that regard last week. I'll share a few. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Let us, excuse me, this is Hebrews, and let us consider how to stimulate one another toward love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more so that you see the day drawing near. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And Lord kept filling with a sense of awe. First, second, and then third base is gearing up. This is gearing up is for training and service. If I can just put a label on it, biblically speaking, this is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. I want you to think about something that here at Calvary Bible Church, what, what is one thing that really makes us unique amongst the community? Is we have a lot of really educated and really smart men and women here. My intention is to tap into that God-given resource to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says, The things which you have learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 says, And he gave some as apostles and as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry to the building of the body of Christ. So we plan to gather and worship, we grow in a group, and we gear up in training and service. A necessary part of growing in our faith is being equipped to go out and serve, and actually serving in the church and beyond our walls themselves. And one of the things that we want to do is basically take Sunday school and not get rid of it. Don't, don't pierce me in the hallway, okay? We don't want to get rid of Sunday school, but kind of repurpose Sunday school to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and also help one another Discover our spiritual gifts and use it in the body of Christ. One of the most discouraging things for a Christian is to know their spiritual gift and struggle to find a way to use that gift. How many of you have ever felt that way before? That you feel like you have the gift of teaching, you have the gift of exhortation, you have the gift of evangelism, you have all these gifts that the Lord has given to you, and you struggle to find a church just to let you flap your wings a little bit. And then ultimately, everything that we do should be to send out disciples, biblical disciples of Christ, into the community to reach, grow, and then send non-believers and believers to the ends of the earth. Everything we do, gather, grow, gear up, and leads to go out. The lens that I use for evangelism or outreach, for, especially on a corporate level, is even personal, is found in Acts 1.8. It's one of the most famous verses in all of the New Testament. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this. He, Jesus is talking to his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Going out, evangelism, missions, however you want to call it. I don't pick a label. First is to the city, then to the country, and then to around the world. You shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem, the city, Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost part of the earth. Friends, listen. Okay. Everything we do should not be just so that we can hunker down and isolate from the woes of the world. But everything we, sh we do should be to win, build, and send disciples to the ends of the earth to help them grow and reach people as I said last week, the people that live across Drake Avenue are just as important to reach as the people in Kenya. Can I say that again? The people that are living across Drake Avenue are just as important to reach as the people in Kenya. 
So many times we justify us not really evangelizing because we just kind of send a check and let somebody else do that. I think there's, that's part of our church, and that will continue, that we support missions. A big chunk of our budget goes to that end. But friends, listen, we are called to be missionaries too. We are called to go across the street. We are called to go to the ends of the earth, sharing the gospel to a dark world. That is our strategy in a nutshell. Now for the rest of our time, I want to talk about where we're going. And this is really where I just want to camp and just poke and just be transparent. A single pebble ripples a pond. A single flame lights a forest. A single man redeems the lost. And a single church can change the world. But what does it take? What does it take for us as a church, as Calvary Bible Church on 607 Drake Avenue? How can we shape the world that God has given to us? Our model for changing the world is found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. If you haven't turned there already, I'd go ahead and encourage you to do that. And as I said earlier, if you do not believe that one church can change the world, the evidence The fact that you're here today is evidence that one church can really influence the world. And that one church is the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch really changed the world through two different choices that they made. Two choices. I want you to think about life real quick. Every part of life boils down to choices. We want to blame our problems on the choices of others, such as Joe Biden or our parents. We don't really like accepting responsibility for the choices that we make. But our life truly is a compilation of our own choices. This church, we sometimes like to blame other people for issues in the church. But if I'm brutally honest, that we create our own problems. That the choices that we, not just me, not just the elders, but the choices that we as individuals make as Calvary Bible Church creates the culture that we live in. It creates us. The legacy that we leave tomorrow depends on the choices we make today. I'm going to say that again. The legacy we leave tomorrow depends on the choices we make today. If we want to be a church that leaves a legacy beyond the 10 acres of land that we have here, then we must make at least two choices. Two. Notice them. Acts 13, verse 1. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Maniah, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, now notice verse 2, if you have a pen, I want you to circle or highlight or kindle highlight, whatever you want to do, that word while. Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, notice the importance of prayer to their decision making here. When they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them. They sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This church in Antioch changed the world with two choices. Choice number one is they strengthened up leaders. 
Notice verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Notice here that there are a lot of really good core leaders. They have more leaders than just Paul and Barnabas. But they raise them up, that these five men have a special place inside the church of Antioch. A church that wants to change the world must strengthen up leaders. Must see people that are ministering, verse 2, while they're ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. That we as a church body must equip the saints and see how the Lord is working. And we must encourage young men, young women, older men, older women to lead. Strengthen up leaders is the first choice that they make. Can I just, what did most churches do? When they see a young, charismatic person, what do they typically do? We say, well, that's not the way we've done it in the past. Okay, how many of you have heard that one before? Okay, that's not the way we did it in the past. So what are we doing to that young person that the Lord has blessed and is equipping for the ministry to be sent out to all the world? When we say that to a young person or any person, what are we saying? That's not the way we've done it. Please be quiet. I know what we're doing. What do they do in verse 2? While they're ministering, the Holy Spirit set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them out. Let us be careful not to stifle what the Holy Spirit is doing. Let us be careful not to stifle the work of God. You people in the room, you young people, when I was 22 years old, uh, it's been a while. I have a lot less hair. You should have seen, just a side rabbit hair, you should have seen my beautiful mane when I was 21 years old. Some of you remember that epic mane of hair. It was beautiful. Um, but when I was 22 years old and I was serving in the church, I was always waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Get involved in ministry and let the Holy Spirit direct you. The Holy Spirit does not direct a parked car, but the Holy Spirit directs somebody that is already involved in ministry service. If you want to have an impact for the Lord, then be involved in ministry here. Don't wait for somebody to tell you, hey, I need you to do this. There's a part of that. But if you see a need, if you don't feel connected here at Calvary Bible Church, if you feel like you don't have a small group or a fellowship, then create it. Don't wait for me. The Holy Spirit is inside of you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. While they were ministering, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas. If you are older, let the younger people come up. And if you are young, don't wait sometimes to be told always what to do. Choice number one, they strengthened out leaders. And the choice number two that they made was they sent them out. Verse two, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them, then when they had fasted and laid hands on them, they sent them away. I want you to think about who Paul and Barnabas, who they are. They are the cream of the crop. They are all-stars. They are probably the church's really lead, main leaders. 
And what do churches typically do when they have a very charismatic or very energetic young person? They, they, they kind of take them and they kind of hold them to ourselves. We don't want to send them out. We don't want to hog them. That's how we influence the world, is we raise up our own leaders and then we send them out to reach, to build, and to win. And to then make disciples who make disciples. That's how this church in Antioch influenced the world. Think about what happened as a consequence of this one church. From here on, before Acts chapter 13, you see Peter's kind of the main character. But after Acts chapter 13 and on, we have the three missionary journeys and the rest of Paul's ministry. What if the church in Antioch said, well, Paul, you're our best person. You can't leave. You may not be here today. Because Paul planted churches that then he wrote letters to. If the church in Antioch were selfish and kept everybody to themselves, this world would be a vastly different place. How does a church change the world? By strengthening up leaders and then sending them out. As I stated last week, there was a couple of pop quizzes that I was pretty nervous about. And if you, I have a bad fidget. Um, sometimes I tear my nails when I'm nervous, and you can tell I'm nervous about what I'm about to share with you. Instead of strengthening up leaders and sending them out, what do a lot of churches typically do instead? They make, instead of choice one and two, they make choices three and four. Choice number three is they get scared. When God is doing great things, what do churches sometimes do? They get scared. What if this happens? Or what if we grow enough where we have to build this? Or what if we have to move? And what if the call, Lord is calling us to this? That when the Lord is working, so is the enemy. And oftentimes churches just get fearful. Can I just speak here for just a second? I've been a part of this church for 30 years, which is really crazy for me to say that. Or I guess 28 years, technically. But I've seen us as Calvary Bible Church be scared. I've seen us scared. I've seen us scared about money. I've seen us scared about people coming in. I've seen us scared about music. I've seen us scared about preachers. I've seen us scared about a lot of different things. I've seen us scared about liability. You know, just on that note, I'm all for being responsible as a church. I don't want to be irresponsible. But if we're brutally honest, we are more likely to be sued for preaching truth than we are for somebody spraining their ankle in the parking lot. Right? I mean, you can go online right now, and as I was preaching through Romans chapter 1, I talked about the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. Right? I talked about, I've publicly said the, the craziness of kind of the gender crisis going on in our country. We are more likely to be sued for preaching the truth. So does that mean we run from it? Of course not. That would be lunacy. That would be heresy. What am I doing up here if we're going to run for truth? Why would I take a year to go through the Gospel of John? Churches can be crippled by fear. They get scared of everything. But we should not be surprised when the world hates us. If we get sued one day, we shouldn't be all that surprised. What does it say in John 15? Jesus is speaking. This I command you, that you love one another. If the, world, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, because of this, the world hates you. Friends, we should not be surprised when the world looks at us differently. 
when we have conflict. And can I just speak? When we do the will of God, guess what's going to happen in retrospect? The enemy is going to be working. I've seen this over the last couple of years as this church has grown and as it has changed and as the Lord has really shaped who we are and where we're going. Guess what has happened over the last, really over the last six months, ever since the vision brought There has been this undergird of conflict. That tells me that the Lord is working. Let us not hunker down in fear of what's going to happen. But let us be bold. What if Paul knew? What if he was scared? He would have not have planted at nearly as many churches as he did. We can't be scared to follow the Lord wherever he calls us to go. But then the real disease of a church is the fourth choice that churches often make. The disease that affects every church, the poison that kills a congregation, the first step for a church to become isolated and not evangelists. The first trail, veering a church off course of God's mission, the choice that most often churches make that is the beginning of the end is choice number four, is becoming self-centered. We don't really want to win, grow, build, equip, and send, because what if they leave? What if my favorite preacher, or favorite personality, or favorite music person, or favorite elder, what if they leave and start a church and then my friends aren't here? That is a self-consumed, which we all struggle with. I'm not condemning anybody in this room. I hope you feel that way. That is a self-consumed mentality. And that kills a church. Church is not about you. It's not about me. It's about him and we. We can't be scared of the future. We can't be self-centered. What does it say in John chapter 12? The church in Antioch, in a sense, had a major loss of Paul and Barnes being sent out, yet that one decision changed the world. What does it say in John 12? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. I believe that this principle that Jesus is talking about is applicable to churches as well. That only when a church completely dies to self, and the members of that church die to themselves, can we truly see the fruit of eternal life that God can bring. So that is our strategy, and that is kind of the Church of Acts, how they shaped and changed the world. So let me just tell you where we're going. I haven't even answered that yet. We've been here for 30 minutes, okay? I haven't even answered where we are going. What is our vision? What are we planning to do? I called a, a friend of mine uh, about a month or so ago. His name was Brian, and we were sitting down and, and um, or excuse me, talking on the phone, I should say. And I said to him, this is, this is the vision that I have, Brian. I said, to send two leaders to plant one church every two years to baptize 400 people in a two-mile radius. And he said, Brian, that's great. That's wonderful, but you have to first establish a beachhead. You have to first build the dock before you send out ships. So this is where we're going. In eight years, this is what we created as a vision team, not just Byron Bradshaw, but we as a team. This is it. That we want to send out 50 leaders, send out 50 leaders that are equipped for service to reach 400 local lonely families. Notice the word local families, not just people that are in Africa, which is great. We should support missions to do that, but we should reach people here. 
to send out 50 leaders to reach 400 local and lowly families, and how will we do that? Our three-year goals, that's our eight-year goal. Our three-year goals is to establish a fully developed strategy, which is we're working towards that ever so slowly. Roll out an intentional relationships campaign, engage with our local community, which is why we're building, part of the reason why we're building a playground is because of the vision that we're partaking in. And then number four is we want to create a culture of generosity. I'm going to spend two minutes and 34 seconds, I don't know that to be exactly true, but I'm going to spend a couple of minutes talking about that last point, creating a culture of generosity. Now, if you're new here, probably one thought rolling around in your brain is, oh, here's the preacher again just asking for money. It's really not true. Uh, how many of you, how many times have I actually talked about money from the pulpit like this many times? But we, if we want to see outrageous vision, we must be outrageously generous. If we want to see outrageous vision, we must be outrageously generous. If we want to see outrageous vision, we must be outrageously generous. Young and old, rich and poor, we must be generous to the kingdom of God. It takes money to build a playground. It takes money to plant a church. It takes money to go on mission trips. And if you're wondering if this is a sales pitch, it's not because we're actually doing quite well on a financial level. We're debt-free. We've used our money very wisely over the last three decades. Thank you to the deacons that have done a wonderful job in that regard. We have all of the renovations we made around here have been done in cash, and we have spent a fortune. And guess what? We have more money than we did four years ago. Every year, the giving goes up. Every year, the budget goes up. Every year, we hire more staff. That is a, a sign of your generosity and a sign of the work of the Lord, but let it continue. To see outrageous vision requires outrageous generosity. Young people, I mean, the older generation here are very generous. If you do not know that, I know that. But young people in the room, I'm just going to speak from personal experience. When I was 22 years old, I really didn't give much. And I regret that. Not out of a sense of shame, but out of a sense of that's not what I should have done. And we as Christians, part of the Christian life is to give of the resources that God has given to us. To be generous to the church and its work. Let us be like the church in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is the church in Macedonia, and it talks about their generosity. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in their wealth of liberty. For I testify that according to their ability, and behold, beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. What are they saying? That this church in Macedonia was poor, and yet they basically begged Paul to take their money. Friends, listen. If we want to see outrageous vision, it takes outrageous generosity. And that is my money spiel. Okay, moving on. Where are we going? Our vision in eight years is one to see 50 trained leaders to reach 400 local lonely families, and we will achieve that in eight years by first achieving our three-year goals, by having a culture of generosity, fully developed strategy, rolling out an intentional relationships campaign, and engaging with our local community. Friends, I 
I don't want to be that church. I want to be that church. I don't want to be that church that's really far off the road, that's really close to the Covenant Presbyterians. It's right before the hill you get to Randolph School. That's really, why are you so far off the lawn? And what's, that, what's up with that old house up there? Okay, I don't want to be that church. I want to be that church. A church that is strengthening up leaders, that is sending them to the uttermost parts of the earth. And friends, listen to me. I've heard murmurs over the last year to seeing how the Lord has been working here at Calvary Bible Church over and over again. I hear from the elders, I hear from the people, I hear from the deacons, I hear from men and women alike of all ages of how the Lord is really bringing us together, how the Lord is shaping our future and how the Lord is working. And friends, right behind that, we shouldn't be surprised that the enemy is working too. If the enemy is whispering in your ear that you should have this and you should have this and Byron should be doing this and elders should be... Just, just chill. Okay, just... We are on the knife's edge. I shared this illustration last week. There's a 14,000-foot mountain in Colorado called Capitol Peak. And there is a trail that is no longer than a foot or two wide that's called the knife's edge, that if you fall off on either side, you fall to your death amongst the boulders below. Friends, we have a path to the summit of the mission that God has given to us. The question I have for you is will you be united in it? Or will you be the person standing in the boulder field pulling others down because of a preference that you have? I believe the Lord has wonderful things for our church in the near future. But the choice is yours. It's not just mine. The choice is yours as individuals. Will you be part of the work of God or will you be a detractor of it? A single pebble ripples a pond, a single flame lights a forest, a single man redeems the lost, a single church can change the world. Will that be us? The choice is yours. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, I just thank you for the last year and just the vision and the direction that you've given to our church on where we should where we should go and how the Lord has kind of uniquely wired us. And I know, Lord, that some of us here today, that I'm sure some of this rubs people wrong, and some people have checked out since they talked about mission and vision. But Lord, it's just a necessary piece of following your will and where we are going. And I thank you for the vision team that you have that you assembled here in helping us synthesize our direction. And Lord, I I think... We are on the verge of being not that church, but that church. The church that strengthens up leaders and sends them out to reach, build, and grow. Lord, thank you for this church. I thank you for the generosity that they have. And I thank you that you have just blessed us over the last couple of years. Lord, I pray that we would be bold and not scared. And I pray that we would be selfless and not self-centered. Thank you for today and I thank you for this body. And I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.